Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, part four of my ongoing series on false flag operations in America, Grenada, Panama, and the Gulf War with Iraq. So the United States gave Saddam the green light through Gillespie, and he had had a relationship with the United States since the 1960s, and uh, we had never interfered or betrayed him before as long as he did what we told. So she gives him the green light and he smiles. This podcast is brought to you by Paranormal Contractors. If you have unwanted paranormal activity in your home or business, this is no time to be dealing with amateurs. You need to bring in the professionals. Paranormal Contractors is a division of crime and trauma scene cleaners. They utilize the latest scientific technology to investigate, authenticate, and remediate your ghost or demon problem. Call them at this new number, 631 5-5-2-5-8-3-5. That's 631-552-5835. Email paranormalcontractors at gmail.com and tell them Richard sent you. Check out their YouTube channel, Paranormal Contractors, for things that go bump in the night. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard Serrett. Welcome to your Friday. Now, I'm a little late in getting this one uploaded today. I was making rather merry last night, as Bob Cratchit said in A Christmas Carol. I had my good friends Nelson and Wanda Thal over to the house for a barbecue. Nelson, of course, no stranger to this podcast and my weekly syndicated radio program, The Conspiracy Show. Nels is a longtime JFK assassination researcher, media scientist, former protege of the great communications guru, Marshall McLuhan, and they brought us the most wonderful, organic, hormone-free steaks. So we threw those on the barbecue, some wine, great conversation, had a great time talking conspiracies and hockey. Uh, such wonderful people, Nels and Wanda Thal. I'll get Nels back on the podcast soon. On this installment, we continue to work our way through Clint Lacey's A Beginner's Guide to False Flags, the deep state's agenda behind America's biggest events. In part four, we're going to examine the ulterior motives behind the invasions of Grenada, Panama, uh, and the overthrow of Manuel Noriega, the invasion of Iraq during the first Gulf War. Clint Lacey is a lifelong resident of Missouri, he resides in the eastern Ozarks foothills of southeast Missouri. He's an independent writer who's been published in both mainstream and independent newspapers and magazines. In 2015, Clint released his first book, Blood in the Ozarks, Union War Crimes Against Southern Sympathizers and Civilians in Occupied Missouri. His latest book is The Beginner's Guide to False Flags. Clint Lacey, welcome back to Conspiracy Unlimited for part four of 
false flags. How are you? I'm good, Richard. How are you? Terrific. Thank you. Well, let's just dive in as we slowly work our way through uh, all of the chapters, or as many as we can, of your book, A Beginner's Guide to False Flags, The Deep State's Agenda Behind America's Biggest Events. Let's talk about the invasion of Grenada. In uh, October of 1983, President Reagan cites this Marxist uh, regime in Grenada and uh, the safety of, uh, I guess, about a thousand U.S. nationals who were primarily studying medicine in, in Grenada at the time. Reagan was concerned, he says, for their, uh, for their safety after this Marxist overthrow. It was called Operation Urgent Fury. And I guess it was, they pretty well mopped up that operation in about four days. And depending on who you speak to, there were, I don't know, somewhere between 20 and 100 Cubans and Grenadian soldiers killed. So what's your take on the invasion of Grenada, Clint? There was a coup there, and the leader, Maurice Bishop, was executed and replaced by Bernard Cord. And uh, from, from what I can understand and and from what I've researched, the situation was becoming unstable, and the citizens were starting to rise up against the new leader. And uh, yes, Reagan was concerned about this. Uh, said it involved a deployment of uh, 6,000 military personnel, of whom 20 were killed and 100 were wounded. The big question was it of this event, though, was was this invasion planned before Bishop's assassination? At least one source claims that it was planned. An article published at the Intrepid Report states that the situation in Grenada had been a concern to America since 1979 when the leftist bishop seized power and began to develop close relations with Cuba. In August of 81, the uh, United States carried out a rehearsal of a direct military invasion by air and sea off the coast of uh, Puerto Rico. An article I found at uh, Rents.com contained a slightly different version, saying allegedly it was to rescue American military or medical students. Uh, the mission reflected U.S. imperialism, Cold War politics, and replacing the leftist New Jewel movement government with a pro-Western one. In a paper by Yale University professor emeritus of sociology, Wendell Bell, contains information that sheds light on this. says two U.S. Two US diplomats flew in and out of Grenada during the weekend before the invasion on Tuesday, reacting to the assurances given by Grenada that the USA could evacuate the Americans on the island. Pierre Elliott Trudeau, which I believe that was the father of your current prime minister, correct? Yes, he was. Was widely reported as saying, obviously, if they, the Americans, had the authority to do that, evacuate American students, I cannot see any reason for invading to protect your nationals. There is no indication that the Reagan administration made any effort to evacuate the Americans peacefully. The White House contended that Pearl's Airport at Grenada was closed that Monday, 24th of October. Later, American officials admitted that at least four charter planes had left that day and that U.S. diplomats visited Grenada the weekend before the invasion and had no problem getting in and out. In other words... There was no need for this this type of military operation. They could have waltzed in there, put those 1,000 American medical students on helicopters, flown them out, probably unopposed, and uh, no need to depose the government. It certainly seems that way. And to be fair, uh, Trudeau probably would have taken the, the side of the government at the time there because he 
was pretty much a socialist. Oh yes, <laughs> very cozy you with uh, very cozy with uh, Castro as well. Much to my consternation, but that was that's the way it was. Yeah, and uh, I don't know how much truth there is to this, but certain people say that the current prime minister is. Uh, is the son of Fidel Castro. Yes, yes. Those uh, those rumors are uh, alive up here as well. I have to say, when you look at photographs of a young Castro and a young Justin, they both have uh, that dark, wavy hair, a sort of dark, brooding eyes. There is a resemblance. However, it's pretty clear to me when I see Justin, uh, certain looks, certain facial expressions, he's very much his father's son. So I can't put much credence in that. Yeah, it's what it is, a rumor. I just thought it might be an interesting rumor. Oh, it is. Uh, oh, yes. I mean, imagine <laughs> the intrigue. Margaret Trudeau and Pierre had kind of an unusual relationship. Someone might, Some might even call it an open marriage. So who knows? She may have had a dalliance with Fidel. Yes, or, you know... Uh, Justin could be somebody else's besides Fidel as well. <laughs> I suppose. Or, or he could be Pierre. I don't yeah, know. I'm thinking he's very much Pierre Trudeau's son. Definitely a, a look there that both of them share. So if, if the reason was, ostensibly, the reason was to remove those medical students, and they didn't have to do it that way, they could have just evacuated them. What, in your mind, or based on your research, was the purpose of uh, the the invasion of Grenada? Well, it's speculative, but uh, some say it might have been used as a distraction to get America's minds off a terrorist bombing in Lebanon that had killed 200 Marines. And others say it was to bolster American confidence uh, in its military and finally rid the country of what they called Vietnam syndrome. Uh, the third most likely reason was that Reagan administration was afraid of Grenada becoming a staging operation uh, for the spread of communism throughout the Caribbean. Yeah, I think all of those certainly have merit. This was, as I recall, we were still in the midst of the Cold War, and this was kind of the first rollback, if you will, of a communist nation. And so it, was, it would be quite a, a feather in Reagan's cap. Finally, you know, we took one back from the commies. Yeah, you know, and thinking about it, I'm not condoning it, but looking at it politically... Uh, it would be a good message to send to other countries that might test us or test him. Well, certainly because it's in the United States backyard. And then you had the the, uh, the Sandinistas in Nicaragua. There was a bit of a momentum there back in the 80s. And yes. uh, all of a sudden you could, have, you could have had a situation where there were a number of staging grounds uh, for the Soviet Union. It could have it could have turned out to be another who knows another Cuban Missile Crisis down the road, so I think all those factors probably weighed in. The interesting thing though was because it, I mean this move was very unpopular in Great Britain, because Grenada was a former British colony. Uh, they just recently, I, I believe, they recently gained their independence several years prior, uh, and this really kind of put a bit of a wet blanket on the um, a very what was prior a very cozy relationship between Margaret Thatcher and, and Reagan she was not happy with the invasion of Grenada yeah uh, and if she was unhappy with that perhaps she was a little more thankful that we did not get involved in the Falkland Islands or later 
let's move on. We're going from Grenada to Panama, the U.S. invasion of Panama, and the uh, the ultimate arrest, imprisonment of Panama's strongman, Manuel Noriega. Walk us through this one. Well, this ties in with uh, what you were talking about, the, uh, the Sandinistas and the Iran-Contra affair. And it was all lumped into this one big operation in which the United States through the CIA was shipping arms to Central America to fight the communists. And the way they was paying for it, they would ship a, a load of drugs back through Panama and then to Mena, Arkansas, where the drugs would be distributed throughout the country. And Manuel Noriega was a key player in this. And he once boasted that he had President Bush by the, I won't say it on air. The cojones. You know what? <laughs> yes, that may, perhaps that's a good way to put it. And he felt very confident that, that Bush could not touch him because he, he knew what was going on behind the scenes. He knew because the planes were were coming in and out of Panama and then to Mena. So, and there was this whole deal where American military personnel and citizens working in Panama were starting to get assaulted by, by Noriega's thugs. And that just proved to be a, a really good excuse to go down there and take care of the Manuel problem. Right, because they, they had been pressuring him to resign and he said he had no intention of resigning. There were a number of U.S. personnel... Well, one was killed anyway. One was shot and killed. It was a member of the U.S. Marine Corps was killed, right? At a, at a roadblock or something, as I recall? Yes. Yeah, and, uh, you know, perhaps if he would have gotten that under control, uh, well, there probably would have been an evasion because he just knew too much behind the scenes. But I guess when he started boasting about it and bragging that he couldn't be touched because he knew too much about him, he made himself a marked man. And uh, I remember watching this on TV when I was younger. I remember when he fled to the church and sought sanctuary, and then they they put these uh, military vehicles around the church and just blasted rock music as loud as they could 24-7. That's right. That's right. Yeah, until he finally just gave up. He couldn't take anymore. And if I'm not mistaken, I could be wrong about this, but I'm pretty sure at one time Manuel Noriega was at the maximum security prison in Marion, Illinois, which is like. I don't know, an hour and a half away from where I live now. There were several well-known people that passed in and out of there, and he was one of them, if I'm not mistaken. Right, right. Uh, we mentioned the, the killing of this U.S. Marine in an incident. It was a roadblock, and that was December 16th, uh, 1989, and then four days later came the invasion. And while that was sort of ostensibly the reason they were responding to the killing of a U.S. serviceman. This was the largest U.S. invasion of a country since Vietnam. There were something, almost 30,000 uh, soldiers involved. So something like that uh, would have taken months and months to plan, not four days. Yeah, correct. And, you know, it, if that was the sole reason for going in there was the death of a U.S. Marine, that would have been perfectly logical and uh, acceptable. But the facts show that it was mainly to take care of a, uh, a loose end, if you will in the whole uh, Iran-Contra scandal. Do you think that Noriega was shaking down the U.S. administration, saying, blackmailing them, essentially, and was threatening to spill the beans on this uh, drug-running operation? My personal opinion is yes, which was pretty stupid on his part. But from what I could tell, he had a very large ego, and sometimes people with large egos think they're invincible. You know, this isn't condoning Iran-Contra or bringing drugs into the U.S. or anything. I'm just saying that uh, 
Noriega played the wrong card. Why do you suppose, if they were afraid that he was going to spill the beans, why do you suppose they let him live? Why didn't they, why wouldn't they have taken him out? You know, there was a trial. Uh, he could have spilled the beans during the trial. Uh, he could have, but they could have easily killed him in prison as well. I, maybe they just wanted to make him an example to anybody that, to anybody else that, that wanted to spill the beans and might have been involved in it. Of course, they could have done that by killing him too. So, I guess we may never know why. It was kept out of the trial. I mean, he he had an opportunity during the trial to talk about his his connections with the CIA and his relationship with Oliver North and all of that. But it was it was kept out of the trial. I suppose the judge must have ruled that uh, that couldn't have been part that could, he couldn't use that as part of his defense. Uh, and that happens a lot. Uh, judges will not permit certain information to uh, to be used in a trial, and that could have certainly happened. So basically, he languished in prison for the uh, for the rest of his life. I know France also tried to extradite him for uh, drug and money laundering as well, but uh, that never happened, obviously. No, and uh, he just knew too much about about the operation running arms to Central America and using drugs to pay for them. So that I mean, the administration there's no possible way they could let France extradite him because then they would have to deal with the whole whole issue of him spilling the beans again. Uh, and who knows? Maybe maybe they threatened his family or maybe they paid his family off or something in return for his silence. And uh, then, of course, he eventually was extradi- extradited to, to Panama to serve out his sentence there. And uh, there he died, I guess, of a brain hemorrhage. Yeah, I believe that's correct. He, he pretty much became uh, a non-issue, you know, after after he was in prison in America for a while. And, you know, most people don't even know that they shipped him back to Panama. And uh, what whatever happened, whatever agreement, whatever threats were made, it was effective in keeping him silent. More of my conversation with author Clint Lacey when Conspiracy Unlimited returns. It's Friday, and that means a visit from Christian Decadieu, the co-host of Reverse Speech Radio, an exciting new podcast, also co-hosted by David John Oates, the discoverer of reverse speech. What do you have for us this week, Christian? Well, we have some very interesting paranormal cryptozoology, one of my absolute favorite topics of all time, the ongoing amazing phenomena of the Sasquatch. And we have, I found some amazing reversals regarding the Albert Ostman, the Canadian prospector who was in fact kidnapped back in 1924 by a family of Sasquatches for several days in British Columbia. And this happened in 1924, but the recording did not come out many, many years later. Okay. So here he is, this old prospector describing how a, a Sasquatch basically came into his house. Here we go. Well, he came through the bush into the shed, or the lean-to of the house, and there was a bottle of dried fish or smoked salmon, rather, and he broke the bowl, and there was some fish eaten there and thrown around. If you don't remiss. If you don't remiss. If you don't remiss. All right, so the prospector is describing this Sasquatch, said, saying he came out of the brush and into the shed or the lean-to of the house, and there was a bottle of dried fish on the table. 
dried salmon or something, and basically the, the Sasquatch, I guess, broke it, was trying to get at it. And, uh, and then, in the reversal, it sounds like he's saying, she done a mess. What is that all about? So this is the, what I refer to as the amazingness, the awesomeness of reverse speech, because it, it demonstrates and shows if someone is, in fact, lying. She done a mess. Well, first, in his reverse, his forward is stating that he. Now, his unconscious mind in reverse is saying she. So, therefore, he didn't realize, uh, Albert Osman did not realize that the, the Sasquatch that took him was, in fact, female and not male. Furthermore, his forward speech is telling the story of how the female Sasquatch broke into his shed or his living area uh, looking for or was going through a bottle of fish and was making uh, making a mess. And that's what his reversal says. She done a mess. So it's congruent, is congruent with the forward. And the reversal says she done a mess. So you can't get more congruent than that. Substantiating Albert Osman's story, his amazing encounter with being kidnapped and living against his will, for that matter, with a family of Sasquatches. Amazing. How do people listen to Reverse Speech Radio every week? Just go to reversespeech.ca and click on the link that says Reverse Speech Radio. All right. We'll talk to you again next week, Christian. Thank you so much, Richard. Take care. Christian Decadure, along with David John Oates, the hosts of this exciting new podcast, Reverse Speech Radio. You can go to reversespeech.ca or you can go to reversespeechradio.libson.com reversespeechradio.libson.com Theoretical physicists say that there is as many as 12 hyperdimensions. Here are just three of them. Conspiracy Unlimited. Conspiracy Unlimited. Conspiracy Unlimited. Pretty cool, huh? Uh, here's an extra one. Conspiracy Unlimited. Hey, how about one more? Conspiracy Unlimited. And the great thing is we have six hyperdimensions left. Conspiracy Unlimited. Five. Clint Lacey is here, the author of A Beginner's Guide to False Flags. Now we'll move on to the first Gulf War. That was launched in August of 1990. I remember so vividly being in a hotel room and, and watching on CNN. This was like watching a video game, this war. This was really the first war that I can recall where we had just kind of like blow-by-blow uh, television coverage, almost complete with halftime shows and, <laughs> and uh, you know, debriefings by General Schwarzkopf every, every other day, it seemed like. It was really a television war. I know they talk about Vietnam that way, but, but this just, this was a total television war. Operation Desert Shield. Yeah, well, the reason for going in was because Saddam had invaded Kuwait and word of atrocities had leaked out. And uh, the United States under President George Bush, you know, declared that this was unacceptable. He wasn't going to have Saddam uh, going all over the Middle East doing whatever he wanted to do. Uh, and the fact is that the U.S. and the CIA's relationship with Saddam goes back to uh, the 60s. We propped him up for a long time and we propped him up during the, the Iran-Iraq war uh, and even provided chemical weapons to them. Right, which he later used on a Kurdish insurrection in northern Iraq, which was just absolutely horrific, a, a genocide. Yes, yes. But, you know, we, our government bears 
uh, culpability in that because we gave him the weapon. But he was our guy in Iraq, and uh, he pretty much did what he was told, much like Noriega. And much like Noriega, he had a big ego. But the kicker is, uh, what a lot of people don't know, is that the U.S. cultivated Hussein as a moderate and a reasonable Arab uh, right up until he invaded Kuwait. And on July 25, 1990, U.S. Ambassador April Gillespie met with Saddam to talk about his massive troop buildup along the Iraq-Kuwait border. And uh, here's part of the transcript. Uh, Gillespie says, I have direct instructions from President Bush to improve our relations with Iraq. We have considerable sympathy for your quest for higher oil prices, the immediate cause of your confrontation with Kuwait. She then pauses and says, as you know, I've lived here for years and admire your extraordinary efforts to rebuild your country. We know you need funds. We understand that. And our opinion is that you should have the opportunity to rebuild your country. She pauses again. We can see that you have deployed massive numbers of troops in the South. Normally, that would be none of our business. But when this happens in the context of your threats against Kuwait, it would be reasonable for us to be concerned. For this reason, I've received an instruction to ask you in the spirit of friendship, not confrontation, regarding your intentions. Why are your troops massed so close to Kuwait's borders? So Saddam replies by saying, as you know, for years now, I've made every effort to reach a settlement on the dispute with Kuwait. Yeah, they were slant drilling. They were they were drilling uh, on an angle and basically and drilling into Iraqi territory, tapping into Iraq's oil reserves. Yes. Uh, and for anybody who's who's watched the Daniel Day Lewis movie, There Will Be Blood. Uh, at the end, uh, this guy had protected this one plot of land that was supposed to have the most oil in the whole region, which uh, Daniel Day-Lewis made his fortune. And he tells him he used a milkshake, for example. He said, I took my straw and I drank all your milkshake. So, yeah, uh, that's what they were doing. Basically, that's what Kuwait was doing, was, was, was drinking his milkshake. Yeah. <laughs> um, Saddam says, I'm prepared to give negotiations only this one more brief chance. And he says, when we, the Iraqis, meet with the Kuwaitis and we see there is hope, then nothing will happen. But if we are unable to find a solution, then it will be natural that Iraq will not accept death. So Gillespie responds, what solutions would be acceptable? Saddam replies, if we could keep the whole of the Shat al-Arab, our strategic goal in our war with Iran, we will make concessions to the Kuwaitis, but if we are forced to choose between keeping half of the Shat and the whole of Iraq, uh, it says in Saddam's view, including Kuwait, then we will give up all of the Shat to defend our claims to Kuwait to keep the whole of Iraq in shape we wish, we wish it to be. What is the United States' opinion of this? Uh, Ambassador Gillespie replies, we have no opinion on your Arab-Arab conflicts, such as your dispute with Kuwait. Secretary of State James Baker has directed me to em emphasize the instruction first given to Iraq in the 1960s that the Kuwait issue is not associated with America. And it said Saddam smiles. So the United States gave Saddam the green light through Gillespie. And he had had a relationship with the United States since the 1960s. And uh, we had never interfered or betrayed him before as long as he did what we told so she gives him the green light and he smiles. And on August 2nd, 1990, he ordered his forces to invade Kuwait. 
Furthermore, the CIA had been working with Iraq since 1963 and with uh, Saddam Hussein since 68. And after he invaded Kuwait, Bush gave a uh, Saddam Hussein a deadline to leave Kuwait by January 15, 1991. And as we know through history, that never happened. Right. And on uh, February 24th of uh, 91, the ground war began. Gillespie meets with Saddam. He says, look, Kuwait's drinking all our milkshake with their straw. What do you plan to do if we invade them? Not in so many words, but that's what was indicated. And uh, she says, we have no opinion on Arab Arab conflicts. You do with, basically tells him, you do with Kuwait what you wish. So he invades and we decide it's unacceptable. Right. And, you, you know, not to defend uh, Hussein because he was a butcher, but here he goes to war with Iran. Essentially, he's doing the bidding of the West because, again, Iraq was perceived as the, mo- the moderate country. And revolutionary Iran was seen as the uh, the aggressor, which had sort of expansionist motives in the region. So it's almost like a proxy war. And Hussein fights it on behalf of America. They go $80 billion in debt. I mean, Iraq is left in ruins after this eight-year war. And much of that money is owned to Kuwait. And Kuwait used to be part of Iraq. Right. Yeah, so you can uh, see you can see why he would end, as you point out. You know, the, the Kuwait is stealing their oil. So you can see why uh, why Hussein would have been so frustrated and angry with Kuwait, and then to be given the green light to invade, only to have this happen. He must have been absolutely gobsmacked. Yeah, yeah. And uh, in October of 1990, a 15 year old Kuwait girl identified only as. Uh, Naira appeared in Washington before the House of Representatives Human Rights Caucus and testified that Iraqi soldiers who invaded Kuwait on August 2nd tore hundreds of babies from incubators and killed them. Uh, It was all over the television, and uh, it said it electrified opposition to Iraq's President Saddam Hussein, who is now portrayed by President Bush as not only the butcher of Baghdad, but so much for old friends, a tyrant worse than Hitler. Uh, Bush quoted uh, Naira several times and referred to the 312 premature babies at Kuwait City's maternity hospital who died after Iraqi soldiers stole their incubators and left the infants on the floor. Uh, the only problem with this story was it was a lie. Yeah. Uh, Naira, though, was no impartial eyewitness. A fact carefully concealed by her handlers, she was the daughter of Saad Saad Nasser al-Sabah, Kuwait's ambassador to the United States. Mm -hmm. And a few key key congressional leaders and reporters who knew uh, Naira was, but none of them thought of sharing that minor detail with Congress, let alone the American people. Well, the other thing about it is, if you just stop and think, okay, so they steal the incubators, why would what would Iraqi soldiers be doing with incubators? And so let's say they stole them, and they just they put the infants on the floor. What? No one had the presence of mind to pick up the infants off the floor, wrap them in blankets. I mean, just it's just absurd. Uh, and then, of course, we find out not only is she the daughter of a, the Kuwaiti ambassador, who's behind it? This at the time they were the world's largest. 
a PR firm, Hill and Knowlton. They orchestrated the whole thing. <laughs> yes, and it, it's very reminiscent of after the Lusitania uh, was sunk, which was used to get us into World War One. Uh, the story going around was uh, Germany gave kids a day off school to celebrate and sing songs celebrating it, the sinking of the Lusitania, which never happened. Uh, but that's usually uh, of no concern to those propagate uh, propagating the uh, the propaganda, <laughs> like right. for, for lack of a better term. Sure, sure. Uh, and the other thing was, even when it was proven to be a lie, even when it was exposed as a Hill and Knowlton PR scam, and she was a daughter of a Kuwaiti ambassador, the media kept banging on it, banging on it for years later, for years later, even though it had been proven uh, to be a complete hoax. Well, unfortunately, there is no objective media anymore. Uh they pretty much take their marching orders from from whoever's in power, not necessarily who's in office, but who's in power that yields the most power. And we see the media uh, just repeating, 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 repeating right now, uh, even though it was proven that there was no collusion between President Trump and Russia. Uh, they're still trying to brain it up and say that. And before that, he was a rapist. That didn't pan out. After Mueller came out with his press conference, they tried to rape thing again. That didn't pan out. Uh, so now they're trying to tie him to Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, and the fact is, yes, Trump knew Jeffrey Epstein. Like everyone did uh, in Palm Beach. He was a fixture there. Yeah. And as soon as he found out that Epstein was uh, trying to lure this uh, young lady uh, who worked at Mar-a-Lago, to, uh, you know, lure her to the island or his house in Palm Beach, wherever it was, he banned Jeffrey Epstein from his establishment. But you're not hearing that. All you're hearing is Trump-Epstein. It's word association. It, right. And in fact, you're right. Uh, when, when this all eventually comes out, and it is coming out, much of it's being ignored, but Trump emerges as the, as the guy in the white hat, because not only did he, when he found out who Epstein was and what he was up to, and he banned him from his club, but also there was a, um, a former prosecutor in Broward County who was defending one of the victims. And, and uh, this gentleman, this lawyer, started subpoenaing uh, and reaching out to a lot of people that knew Epstein. And the only one, he just said this within the last year, it's on record, this lawyer said the only one who answered the call was Trump. He said, "He said we'll talk on the phone. You can have as much time as you want. I'll tell you everything that I know. And uh, he said that information was very helpful. He said Trump was the only one. So, uh, you know, compare that with uh, Clinton's 26 uh, flights aboard the Lolita Express, during which on a numerous occasions he ditched his secret security detail. Yes, and uh, and sticking with this, uh, Roger Stone was on a program the other day and stated that, I guess, before Trump knew Epstein really well, uh, he invited him to his uh, Palm Beach home, and when the driver was taking Trump there, he said uh, something to the effect of, well, look what a great guy that Epstein is. He's letting all the neighborhood kids swim in his pool, and when he found out it wasn't the neighborhood kids' In his pool, he said, get me out of here. 
I, you know, I don't want to be around this. Right, right. Yeah, uh, it, this is big trouble for the Clintons. And uh, also the um, uh, Ghislaine Maxwell, uh, who we now know was a co-conspirator with Epstein, she was basically uh, hired to troll for these young girls, bus stations, train stations, airports. Can you imagine? She was recruiting these young girls, to, delivering them into Epstein's evil clutches. And uh, where does she turn up? As the guest of honor at Chelsea Clinton's uh, wedding. Yes, yes. Uh, I, for one, I don't believe anything's going to happen to the Clintons, though, because there is a long list of people who have died testifying against them, for one. And for two, they have so much dirt on a lot of other people because they were at the same parties together. Uh, Time will tell. Uh, but when it comes to Epstein and the abuse of children uh, and the Clintons, then you have to lump the Podestas in with that yes. because uh, a lot of stuff come out with, uh, of WikiLeaks about this, a lot of really disturbing stuff. Very strange language that John Podesta was using in his emails, some of which uh, the FBI has flagged as code uh, used by pedophiles. Yes, and I get to that Later on in the book, uh, I actually list a lot of the code in there. Ah, well, you know, why don't we leave it here then, and we will pick up chapter or part five of False Flags, and we will eventually get there. We, we jumped ahead a bit, but that's okay. Uh, Clint Lacey, how do we get a copy of A Beginner's Guide to False Flags? Uh, you can go to foothillsmedia.net, and it'll be right there on the front page. Just click buy now, $15, or you can go to Amazon and type in Clint Lacey. Or a beginner's guide to false flags, and uh, that's a pretty good deal because it's 294 pages of information. Well, it's pretty all-encompassing. I mean, it starts with the very first shot of the Revolutionary War and takes it takes us right up to the present day. Thanks very much, Clinton. Yes. We'll talk again soon. All right, thank you, Richard. Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'll be back in a flash to fill you in on what's in store on the next episode of Conspiracy Unlimited. If you're a fan of this podcast or my weekly radio program, The Conspiracy Show, or my YouTube channel, Strange Planet, I hope you'll consider becoming an official donor. A donation of $50 a month places you in the star chamber. $20 a month is the whistleblower tier, and a donation of just $10 per month makes you a truth seeker. Star Chamber and Whistleblower members can participate in an exclusive monthly online chat or video conference with me. And all donors are entered into a monthly draw for Strange Planet merchandise. Any monthly amount is welcome and greatly appreciated. To become an official donor, go to patreon.com forward slash strange planet. Patreon.com forward slash strange planet. Coming up next on Conspiracy Unlimited, the true purpose of the pyramids revealed. There was no pharaoh's carcass in the Great Pyramid. There was no treasure. There's no reference to Orion or anything like that. So all researchers have is the same direct physical evidence to make their assessment of how it was assembled and why people in ancient times would go to such a monumental effort to build such a structure. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. 
new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting.